This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. Joining me is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hi, Dan. There is plenty to tweet about this week. I'm, of course, alluding to Elon Musk's appointment to the board of Twitter, which followed a day of pretty intense speculation that he might be in the market for more than a 9.2% stake in the social media platform. Now, we'll also be digging into Moonpig's uplift to its revenue outlook and who might be in the market for two big UK names, with Ted Baker putting itself up for sale and the government announcing it's looking for a buyer for Channel 4. Also, market reaction to new sanctions on Moscow and Laura chats to Simon Stickney from Collider about whether you can actually time the market. Now, I've been talking gold with Adrian Ash from Bullion Vault. Is it still the safe haven or investors looking at Bitcoin as an alternative? And on the subject of gold, Jenny Owen tells us how the Royal Mint's looking to turn your old phone into the shiny stuff. Plus, as awful April arrives with a vengeance, new research suggests more and more young people are getting a second job just to make ends meet. Yeah, awful April indeed. And Twitter has been full of commentary about that price cap rise, the change in national assurance now the new tax year is upon us. But it wasn't a tweet that sent Twitter shares into stratosphere because, as Danny sort of said in the introduction to the podcast, We've now seen Tesla boss Elon Musk buy a 9.2% stake in Twitter, worth nearly $3 billion at the time. That news sent the share price jumping by 25%. And I think this is is really interesting because Elon Musk has been a big user of Twitter over the years. And certainly he got into real trouble with um, US stock market authorities for making comments about taking Tesla private. So every time he now writes a tweet about Tesla. It's got to be pre-approved by a lawyer to avoid breaking rules around disclosure of market-sensitive information. Now, as a business, Twitter does make a profit, but it's I think it's kind of failed to excite investors in the same way as other media-related companies such as Facebook. Now, Elon Musk hasn't disclosed why he invested in the business, but in the past, he's talked about wanting to own a social media firm. And there is a sort of a sense that he doesn't like how Twitter's become quite controlling. He's very sort of pro freedom of speech. So, you know, one can speculate it might lead to full takeover of the company. You know, he does have this reputation for having bold visions. So perhaps he sees a way of making Twitter a, sort of a bigger beast. And, you know, Danny, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I'm so reliant on Twitter every day. And I, I think if you asked me, you know, if I had to pay for, a social media platform, Twitter would probably be the one that I would be happy to pay a subscription for every month because it's so valuable. The amount of information I'm getting from there every day and just seeing what people are talking about. I mean, are you a big Twitter fan? I love Twitter. And for news, I think it is absolutely the thing. And you're right, I I couldn't be without it just to keep in touch with all my contacts and just to get information about what's going on really quickly. So I sort of know where to look. What was really interesting, though, about Elon Musk is all this incredible speculation was then followed by a tweet from Elon Musk asking whether or not there should be an edit button on Twitter. And did you see that the buttons for yes and no were spelt incorrectly? 
thus suggesting he needed an edit button. And everyone was saying, well, look, is, is this a hoax? Is this real? Is he going to take over the company? But then it was retweeted by the new uh, Twitter CEO, Parag Agarwal, which sort of lent a, a sort of an aura of respectability to it and made people think, well, actually, maybe there's more going on. And now it emerges that Elon Musk has got a board on the Twitter board, which, of course, is really interesting because it will sort of allow him a seat at the table. But you've got to wonder who is going to be at that seat, because there's Maverick and then there's Loose Cannon. And yes. <laughs> I know certainly some Twitter users will be really worried about what potentially he might do to a platform that they know and love. Oh, I know this sort of speculation that he just wants it to, um, he wants his platform to talk about cryptocurrencies all the time. <laughs> so, you know, I guess he's, that's what he's already been doing that enough anyway. But yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. It's, and I think you, no one saw this coming, which is the most important thing. Twitter is just you know, such an unloved stock. No one could actually come up with any ideas apart from, or, you know, someone might buy it down the road or, or perhaps it should be charging more money. Um, you know, for advertising and charge users. But, you know, if you said at the start of the year, one of my predictions would be that Elon Musk is going to get a seat on the board (laughs) and there's a major shareholder, you know, people like think, okay, that's, that's perhaps a bit madness. Here's a question for you, though. Do you think Elon Musk would allow Donald Trump back onto Twitter? Oh, yes, probably, because anything that attracts, you know, generates publicity. So uh, um, he probably would, I think. What do you think? Well, I know that he's already had loads of tweets from um, Donald Trump supporters asking for Mr. Trump to be reinstated because, of course, Donald Trump tried to launch his own social media platform, did Truth Trump, but uh, it's not done particularly well. Have you signed up? No, absolutely not. (laughs) No, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. But of course, you know, the one thing that Elon Musk is very good at, it's making money. And just his arrival on the scene, as you say, sent Twitter shares up into the stratosphere. And of course, that meant on paper, he made an awful lot of money very quickly. But while we're talking about positive market movement, Dan, it looks like one pandemic winner is still onto a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's Moonpig. So uh, you know, if you've never used it, it's uh, an app and a website. You can you can buy a greetings card. Uh, you can personalize that card and you know they'll send it to someone already printed and you know obviously they will arrange the postage it's it's incredibly convenient but you know perhaps a bit like twitter the stock market and it's sort of the broader group of investors are not quite sure about its sort of long term um appeal you know in lockdown i i used it for the first time and have actually used it quite a few times since then I, you know it's definitely very convenient and the growth story for the company it's trying to spin is that you know, over time, people will go to it as a sort of a platform to buy gifts. So it's not simply just about sending someone a birthday card. You know, you you, you want to send someone some flowers or um, you know, like a teddy bear or something. And you know, the analysts love it. There's always really big positive comments about it. But you know, the share prices sort of you know, would suggest otherwise. And I think people are thinking, well, you know, what happens in a normal world where people are free? to get out and about they can go to the shops again and choose a card and go to the post office to buy some stamps um and i think that the latest trading updates sort of essentially said in december and january that we actually saw sort of a big wave of covid again and of course the company benefited so 
it's almost like people saying, well, yes, it's fine. You know, it shows you again that you're a lockdown winner, but, you know, what about normal life? And um, the company is trying its best to say, you know, this we're here to stay for the long term, but you know, the market is just, just not buying that one at the moment. It's crazy expensive if you buy something to go with your card. You know, you, you get put onto the side, don't you? And you get a card and then it says, do you want to send some chocolates with that? And you go, that's a lovely idea, but I am not paying that. I mean, it is insanely expensive. And I suppose really that's where they need to make more money by getting people to sign up to more than just cards. Well, I, yeah, I have I have done it. I had some a friend of mine. They just had uh, a new baby, and I thought just at the time I just no way I can get to the shop, so I did buy a load of stuff. And well, of course, that's what Moonpig want you to do. They probably make very good profit margins, bigger profit margins that they might do about you know printing up a, a greetings card. But um, yeah, I think there I think there is a market for it. Convenient. Don't forget, it's all about convenience. If if we can pay, um, you, you know, something like delivery two three quid to to go and send us a you know a burger we can't be bothered to go around the shop or the you know to do, go buy a pizza or something from the convenience store then i would have thought that a lot of people would be happy to you know to, to pay up a little bit more than they normally would to um to get this convenience of, of, of gifts and a sort of card at the same time so you're a moon pig shopper but are you a ted baker shopper no i am definitely the wrong target market i mean this is a it's an interesting business isn't it so this is um you know again it it, it sort of it was doing very well uh and then lost a lot of fans and, and and now it's been put up for sale yeah fascinating because it had two bids from sycamore capital which it turned down saying that it didn't represent value for shareholders and because there was so much interest and speculation that there could be some kind of bidding war for the company yeah ted baker said right okay we're going to put the business up for sale and see what happens and already there's a huge amount of speculation that maybe Next could be interested or Boohoo or Marks and Spencer. At the moment, we haven't had any comments from Next or M&S about whether or not they are planning to get involved in this bidding war. But Ted Bake has been really interesting over the pandemic because it's been more badly affected than many other retailers, despite the fact that it's got a decent website, because who's going to be buying a cocktail frock if all they're going to be doing is sitting at their kitchen table eating a takeaway with their parents or their housemates. So it saw sales just absolutely get pummeled. But as you say, it's been doing much better. Um, And the last quarter, it had seen sales growth of 35% compared to the same quarter, quarter four in 2021. But um, Yeah, I mean, they are asking quite a lot of money for it. Um, And I know that uh, Sycamore Capital's latest bid was for uh, $137.50 a share. The share price is up 42% since the beginning of March. It's $146.80 at the moment. So, you know, there's speculation that any offer north of $170 might, attract some interest but I suppose with retail you've got to really wonder exactly how um, attractive it is. I think if you look at a lot of the retail takeovers in recent years they've they've all pretty all tended to be 
buying companies that have quite a well-known brand, but the company themselves has sort of struggled. And so they they bought them out of administration or of a very cut price offer. So I think it's quite interesting when people are sort of suggesting that next smart suspensers want it. But I, I don't see that they would be in a massive rush to own a brand like Ted Baker at all. You know, Sycamore is a US private equity firm. They could definitely probably find ways to um, squeeze some money out of its assets. But it's, it's, you know, it, it's been, it's, I think it's probably been a, a sort of a poorly managed business for a while. It's made a lot of mistakes, the sort of accounting issues. There was all the all sort of things about the, the former founder and the hugging scandal and sort of, um, you know, a lot that of stuff. Was- fascinating wasn't it the hugging scandal yeah yeah Yeah. so it's it's you know it's the 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 brand has been tarnished a bit and uh, i i don't know i just think it's um you know let's see where 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 it goes but i'm not so sure personally that sort of next to marks and spencers would be happy to pay up if there is a sort of any sort of sign of a sort of big beginning war well, you know what a Ted Baker dress is, I have to say. I do like a Ted Baker frock. And certainly M&S bought Jaeger. It's moving into that sort of realm. We've had Boohoo buying up Coast, which, of course, was the occasion where shop if you weren't sort of heading towards Ted Baker or Karen Millen. So potentially, with all these retailers jostling for market share at the moment, trying to fill in the gaps, it, it could be interesting um, let's also talk about the for sale sign going up over Channel Four, Dan. Yeah, obviously Channel Four is—it's not a company on the stock market, so you might sort of wonder what, why are we talking about it. I think what's interesting is who might buy it, and that does certainly involve some companies that are on the stock market. So, um, you know, if you think that as a broadcaster, it's sort of transformed the UK airways, it's really pushed the boundaries with creative output, but. Um, you know, now we've got to the stage where names like Discovery um, is seen as sort of the perhaps the hot favorite to sort of try and buy the business. This is sort of a big US pay TV company. So it's in the process of merging with Warner Media. Um, you, you know, it's got a mixture of free and pay TV operations. And uh, I, I just think, yeah, that's that's an obvious one. ITV as well. I mean, there's certainly sort of lots of chatter about ITV doing it. I don't know about from a from a sort of a, a competition point of view. Imagine the ITV owning Channel Four. You know, would that make it too dominant a force in UK advertising funded TV? So, uh, I guess wait and see. Um, you know, could Netflix and Amazon sort of want to come in? Yeah, they want content, and I think that with you know Channel Four uses a lot of uh, sort of third party production companies, and it's you know. It, Part of its success um, and why it's sort of so loved by the nation is that it's sort of been given this freedom over the years to to um, sort of create sort of very unusual programs, and within that, it sort of created you know helped to build up the sort of the UK film TV production industry. So I think there is a fear that if it was bought by one of these big gigantic companies, that um, perhaps you know that would actually sort of lead to you know, quite a few TV production companies being sort of um, forced to shut down. But you know, I just think it, it's uh, it's an interesting one. But I think its business model perhaps would have to change because I think there'll be a, a, sort of a bigger push to increase margins and sort of commercial opportunities because it, it's run as a not-for-profit business at the moment. 
and that's why you get some really amazing quality bits of entertainment and news, which, of course, is why I know certainly a lot of politicians have been very angry about the government's decision to do this. Um, we've been talking about um, stuff on markets that, you know, for the last few weeks, really, market discussions have been dominated by what's been going on in Russia and Ukraine and all sorts of macroeconomic issues. And there were some wobbles. Um, certainly, uh, yesterday we saw um, US markets fall, and we also saw European markets uh, really wobbling after we had the latest sanctions um, announced that uh, Europe is looking to um, pile on Moscow. So we had um, a lot of speculation that maybe, maybe we would get sanctions on oil. At the moment, uh, the EU Commission said we're working on that, but the proposals do include banning imports of coal, wood, cement, liquors and seafood. So it would hit things like caviar, vodka, rubber and chemicals. And, you know, coal, that's a huge one. It's worth about €4 billion Euros a year. But the, still the sticking point is oil and gas. I mean, when you consider exactly how much Europe spends every day, money that is going into the Russian war chest, which is one of the big reasons why there's been such a lot of pressure on Europe to do more. And we've also had um, a, a interesting move um, in terms of Russia edging closer to a potential default on its international debt. It paid dollar bondholders in rubles and said it would continue to do so as long as its foreign exchange reserves are blocked by sanctions. Now, the United States on Monday for the first time stopped Russia from paying holders of its sovereign debt that was about $600 million from reserves held at US banks. It was a big move because they want Moscow now to have to choose between using the dollar reserves that it has in Russia or defaulting. It now has 30 days to pay up in dollars or risk default. But Russia is saying, look, this is not a default situation. Now, I guess at the moment, because of the sanctions in place, having access to international financial markets is, is just not something uh, which Russia can do. However, going forward, if it defaults, it does mean that any future debt that it wants to acquire, any extra funding that it wants is, is going to cost more. And in, it did have a big impact uh, on markets, particularly the sanctions yesterday. But there was also some comments from the Fed governor as well, which really impacted U.S. markets. Yeah, so we had uh, Leo Brainard, um, one of the governors for the, the Federal Reserve, which is the U.S. central bank. Um, you know, in a sort of a, a sort of a presentation, she said inflation was much too high, and sort of implied it could get even higher, and and therefore it's of paramount importance to get inflation down. And she said that to do this, the Federal Reserve would have to go through a series of interest rate hikes and start to reduce the balance sheet as rapidly as soon as, um, as possible. And this might actually start in May. Now, you, you could think that, OK, the, the market has been expecting interest rates to go up for some time um, in terms of sort of the, 
this this reducing the balance sheet. It's probably worth explaining what's going on. So if you think in, in sort of the, the tougher times where they're trying to stimulate the economy, the, the Federal Reserve was doing something called quantitative easing, printing money to buy bonds from pension funds and banks. Now it's looking at quantitative tightening. So here it would it would no longer buy bonds to replace securities when they mature. Um, and this reduces the financial assets held on its balance sheet. So um, so I think investors are panicking here, thinking that looks perhaps liquidity is going to be drying up a bit. Um, and the market's worried by Leo Brainard's comments that it implies a faster, more aggressive form of monetary tightening. So the theory is that if the Fed does too much too fast, it will tip the country into recession. And that's why you saw shares suddenly start to fall. And, and this extended into Europe and Asia the following day. And I know Leith was talking about that inverted yield curve last week. Um, volatility definitely still with us. And we always hear investors shouldn't try to time the market, but one asset manager thinks you can actually spot when market dips are about to happen and capitalise on them. Laura Saboke to Simon Stickney, Chief Executive of Collider, who explains his thinking. So, Simon, obviously, we're seeing a lot of volatility in markets at the moment, but I know that you have um, maybe a slightly different view to the old adage that we hear that people shouldn't try and time markets. So um, can DIY investors do anything to kind of time markets and predict when markets might be falling? Thanks, Laura. It's, uh, it's an interesting question. And I think obviously with the major geopolitical events going on, I think quite topical, obviously, we're redefining really a lot of boundaries and and new context for how markets might operate going forward. And I think that really makes this question really, really relevant because just doing what we've always done and expecting it to do well in the future, um, I think is, a, is an interesting one to revisit to this point. So I think it ultimately comes down to each individual investor's objectives and goals and time horizons. And But I think for those that are ultimately looking at whether they need to manage their risk or those that are ultimately looking to improve their performance, there are definitely techniques that we've been researching for, for many, many years and deploying in our own strategies that would, would certainly help people from either of those two perspectives. I think from a managing risk perspective, we look at a lot of volatility frameworks and we look at abnormal behavior within asset class behavior using volatility as a way of being able to detect when markets are breaking down and perhaps when they're changing regime uh, to move into a more high volatility state, which is very helpful to understand when you're kind of looking at how you can manage the risk in your portfolio. And then from the kind of improving performance side, we also look at things like least correlated um, quantitative techniques that look to identify stocks that have the least correlation to the main market factors, which can also help lead to significant outperformance over time. Um, so when you're talking about some of those more technical um, aspects, so things like looking at, at volatility as a measure, are there any ways that um, retail investors can kind of implement that with the tools that they've got because they're obviously more restricted than you guys in, in the access to the information they have? Yeah, absolutely. I think you can look across asset classes and you can look at traditional relationships you, that you'd expect to see, certainly when things are starting to destabilize. So a really good example recently would be would be gold, um, which you know, a lot of people you know, use as a risk off trade. And I think if you look at how gold reacted as we've headed into this geopolitical crisis environment with the war in Ukraine, 
if you look at how those relationships have changed um, you know, in terms of the correlations, but also the performance and the volatility of gold versus equities, gold versus fixed income, then there are ways in which you can, you can kind of spot, even from a retail level, you can spot the relationships changing uh, through the data. Um, it just takes a little bit of Excel spreadsheet work to, to figure it out. My favourite thing, Excel spreadsheets. Um, so you can you give some more, I mean, that gold example is really useful. Can you give some more examples of, of how you guys have spotted these trends ahead of time? So, for example, if we think about maybe the, the February 2020 fall in, in markets around um, the COVID pandemic, were there kind of, how did you tackle that kind of market fall ahead of time? So for Collider, um, obviously we have a full armory of, of institutional capabilities and data available to us. And so we run very complex statistical models that are able to capture volatility anomalies in, in real time. And we are then able to use those volatility regime changes to identify investment strategies that perform well in different types of volatility. So in actually February 2020 is the first time we actually had a change of signal for the inter-high volatility. So around the 24th of Feb, um, our systems were giving us a high volatility regime change. And so that meant that we were able to respond ahead of time leading into the March uh, market meltdown to reposition clients' portfolios and to implement trades and trading strategies that could actually not only necessarily insulate from that volatility, but also potentially benefit from that volatility. Examples being at that time, we would have been long gold, short oil, um, and we would have been long certain currency pairs, um, either dollars, yen, Swiss franc, etc. So there are ways that we were able to implement with the full armory of capabilities that we have as an institutional asset manager, um, the ability to, to manage that situation, to de-risk, but also reposition to benefit from the volatility. And if we fast forward to today and to the um, Russia crisis and the impact that that's having on markets, how have you guys used those tools to, to switch up the asset allocation and, and what are those changes that you've made in terms of um, asset allocation? And again, in a very similar way to, to February 2020, actually in, in the latter part of January uh, 2022, this year, um, in our fund, Colonial Global Growth, we, we actually significantly reduced our exposure in that portfolio in the space of an afternoon. So um, around the 20th of January, somewhere around this kind of point in time, um, we actually, again, had a high volatility signal come through from the volatility framework. And for that fund, it, it actually meant taking its gross exposure from around 150% all the way down to, to 100 to leave it with a beta of only 0.8. So literally within the space of the afternoon, we were able to go from being kind of 150% gross on that portfolio all the way back down to 100 and then roll with our least correlated stock book, which took that beta all the way down. And so what does what do, does that profile look like now um, in terms of asset allocation, I guess? So not necessarily um, overall exposure to the market, but um, what areas have you put more money into and, and taken out of? Yeah, so the, the, the least correlated stock book that that portfolio uses is primarily focused on, on identifying those stocks across sectors, across the, um, the, the largest equity markets in the world, so the US, the UK, Japan and Europe, um, identifying stocks that have the least correlated relationship to the main factors driving the market. And so that was quite interesting. That pushed us into more into materials 
um, into consumer staples, um, utilities, um, and kind of the, the more traditional defensive risk-off um, sectors. So, you know, also actually some of the more defensive um, tech names as well. So, cybersecurity um, as well is also one that we've been we've been playing as well through this that's done very well so interesting times and i think that's one of the nice things about from a quantitative perspective being more quantitatively focused because we're kind of agnostic um, on style and sector and the 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 marketplaces that we we can trade Um, this kind of style agnostic approach allows us to adapt the portfolios based on the conditions as opposed to being locked into a certain certain style or approach so the ability to adapt to conditions, I think, is is really key, especially when you have such significant events going on, whether it be coronavirus and the pandemic through to obviously the war in Ukraine, which affects us all around the world. Um, and so we've talked kind of how you spot those um, market dips or, or particularly volatile times. How do you spot that those are coming to an end and that you can adjust your asset allocation back towards maybe what it might have been previously or shift it out from that kind of um, crisis mode, I guess? Great question. And so volatility frameworks go both ways. And so you can use volatility frameworks to detect when things are breaking down and relationships are becoming less stable um, to identify those anomalies. But also you can use it to identify when normality is returning and more stability exists as well. And those relationships that we were describing as abnormal a moment ago actually revert back to being kind of um, traditional and so again we will move from being in a high volatility state perhaps back into a medium volatility or even low volatility regime and that coupled with mean reversion signals and other types of quantitative technique that allow us to identify trends and momentum within markets gives us the confidence that we can then switch back from perhaps being in a risk-off more defensive higher volatility environment we can then use those signals to actually switch back the other way to take advantage then of any rebounds or um, positive developments in markets when that stability returns. And is that a more gradual process than kind of preparing the portfolio for a time of crisis? It can be. It very much depends on how you emerge from the crisis, I guess. If we look at the pandemic, obviously the sheer scale of the QE that was pumped into markets had a dramatic effect on the speed of the recovery because we effectively pumped in more money in the preceding six to 12 months in the pandemic than we had done in the prior 10 years post the financial crisis. And I think when you, with that policy response, that fiscal response, um, monetary policy response, um, you know, w- was unprecedented. I don't think anyone sitting there would have imagined that amount of money being pumped into the system at that point in such a short space of time. And so the recovery out of out of COVID on the point from a market perspective was obviously very much that kind of V-shaped recovery. But it doesn't have to be like that. And, and 2008 is a good example of a, you know, a much more protracted period of time I had to lapse from the very, you know, the lows of 2009 all the way back. And markets actually didn't recover. Equity markets never got back to par until 2013. Uh, from a kind of global equity index perspective so that was quite a considerable time it took to get back to the to the previous highs um so it can be it can be very different depending on each scenario and i think that's why again going back to the very original question yeah why not just a buy and hold approach i think that that actually sometimes these crises especially geopolitical 
have this habit of actually changing the way we operate going forward. And the things that once worked and the, the relationships that once held true get redefined through some of these major events that are taking place, you know, partly in COVID, but also now the geopolitical landscape. These things will, will reshape um, and redefine potentially what good looks like going forward and where performance can be achieved going forward it, it may not be from the same sources that have have served us well over the last 10 years thank you so much for explaining that i hope that gives some good food for thought for uh, investors out there so it's been a pretty terrible week if you've tried to get on a plane from manchester or london's heathrow airports and you know in- incredible queues and, and of course while that's frustrating for you as a traveler it's also pretty terrible for airlines, and, and one could only speculate that if these problems continue, we're going to see some pretty hefty downgrades to their earnings guidance coming up. Yeah, I mean, we already had um, indications from uh, Ryanair uh, earlier this week um, saying that because obviously we had uh, Omicron come back um, in December, not come back in December, but COVID come back in the Omicron variant in December, that it was downgrading the amount of money that it was expecting to um, have taken over the last year. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think just totting it up, it's it's hundreds of flights that have been cancelled uh, over the weekend. EasyJet cancelled 222 flights, um, a further 62 on Monday, and it's just kept going. And British Airways also cancelling a huge number of flights, as you say, um, out of Heathrow. And this is peak holiday time for an awful lot of people. And what we've seen have been absolutely horrendous cues, which is going to knock the confidence of people who've maybe put off booking for their summer holidays. Um, And we know certainly that trying to recruit the kind of staff that they need to fill some of these gaps is going to take time. I think it's something like 12 weeks to get somebody trained up to be, um, you know, the security desk to sort of check people through. Um, But if you think about cabin crews and ground staff, you know, these are are pretty um, intense training that is required. And we saw so many people disappear from the sector during COVID. And some of them have decided that actually, you know, we've found other jobs which maybe are less stressful, certainly better hours. And a lot of um, airlines are struggling to get enough people on their books in order to operate the kind of schedules that they need. And yet, absolutely, if they're not able to operate the flights that they've they'd hoped to, then it is going to impact the money that they can take. Also, because of what's been going on at Manchester Airport, which seems to have been the worst affected and I've got a particular interest in this one because my 13-year-old daughter is supposed to be flying out of there on Saturday morning on a school trip. So heaven help the teachers if they're stuck for a number of hours. (laughs) But but the boss of Manchester Airport, Karen Smart, has resigned. Um, The airport said that um, it was for family reasons, um, that she was looking to have other opportunities. And it looks like this was on the cards before that. But clearly, you know, this is an airport that that went from 100% capacity to pretty much 5% capacity. And it's it's been slowly creeping back. Then you had, obviously, Omicron, which knocked people's confidence and the number of people travelling. And suddenly, Easter, bam, 80 to 90% capacity. And it's trying to 
make sure that you've got the numbers of people in place for when that demand hits. But but maybe, you know, you can't really know for sure that that demand is going to be there for Easter. So, yeah, a, a really tricky time for um, people running airlines and airports. Um, and, you know, I, what surprised me is that bookings are still so incredibly buoyant, considering we have this cost of living crisis, which is really impacting on the amount of disposable income that people have done. So for those people who are lucky enough to have um, sort of spare money, who aren't particularly uh, feeling the pressure because of um, rising bills uh, and just the general increase in the cost of living, um, you know, gold is typically considered by investors when they're putting together a diversified portfolio. But it also gets a lot of tension when things go wrong in the world. So to talk about the dynamics of the gold market, I'm pleased to welcome Bullion Vault's Director of Research, Adrian Ash. Thanks very much for asking me, Daniel. Um, so let's start off with talking about what's happened with gold recently. I think in early March, it's went through $2,000 an ounce as the Ukraine war sort of unfolded. But it's it sort of pulled back a bit to just over um, $1,900 in the past few weeks. I just wondered if you if you could sort of give some comment about why you think the price has sort of fallen back. Is it because perhaps people aren't panicking as much about the war, so they're not rushing to own um, an asset that's often considered to be a safe place to put your money during times of strife. I, I think that's exactly right. What you've had in gold is actually a bull market that's been going on. It began pretty quietly back in the middle of 2018. And obviously the COVID pandemic, gold became the one thing needful, particularly during the early phase of that crisis when useful commodities, industrially useful commodities, collapsed crude oil famously went negative for a while because no one was doing anything gold became associated then in uh investment in the popular investment imagination with the pandemic gold is often associated more broadly with things like inflation and war and i think that's also a hangover from the 1970s you know if you look at gold's famous peak in early 1980 the price had risen uh well i mean it pretty much doubled in about six months that came when the Soviet tanks rolled into Afghanistan. You had inflation at double digits. Um, you had the Iranian hostage crisis, the U.S. embassy. So gold is often associated, as you say, with bad things happening. But in fact, you know, the bull market that we're in at the moment in gold began back when things weren't looking so bad, you know, in the middle of 2018. Um, so what we've had recently is, yes, you've had a flight to gold, particularly after February 24th, after the, Soviet, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, uh, particularly in derivatives, futures and options, and especially the options market, you often see this on geopolitical crises. Um, you know, when there's the sand of gunfire, hedge funds often run into gold options, gold calls. That pulls the price higher. Of course it does, because if people are betting on gold prices being significantly higher in the near future, then the physical price of bullion will necessarily rise alongside. But it did leave a bit of an air pocket beneath that in the actual physical global market, because you know most physical gold at the end of the day, I mean, half of it goes to Indian and Chinese households, primarily as jewelry. jewelry. So what you have is that, you know, if, if speculators are driving the price higher in the derivatives market, but the physical market isn't comfortable with those prices yet, then you will have these air pockets. And that's what we saw on March 8th, 9th, was some of the heat came out, 
of the speculating speculative market and you know there wasn't really a strong bid right there at two thousand and fifty dollars two thousand and sixty dollars the ounce to catch it that's why we've had the retreat and what we've seen certainly on bullion bolt since that spike and pullback is we've seen a very strong rise in new demand so i think what we've had is we've had pent-up demand from Longer-term investors who, as you say, Daniel, view gold as being part of a diversified portfolio. They want to own it as a form of investment insurance, effectively, because gold does often do very well when things go wrong. Um, but they didn't like it at those prices previously. Um, and what you've had is you've had this spike and then this retreat, and that has given people the trigger to actually say, okay, fine, you know, Gold is most definitely working in this crisis. This crisis doesn't really seem to show any sign of wearing off just yet. Inflation is clearly going to be with us for some time. Now might be a good time to bite the bullet and actually add some gold. This, you talk about inflation. I know even before the Ukraine war began, you know, the world is dealing with inflationary pressures. Um, you know, and gold is historically being suggested as somewhere that you, you put your money when inflation rising, but which actually isn't true though. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Say, no, go on, no, go on. I mean, because I find it very, I find it really interesting that gold is so often associated, and and often when I speak to journalists, uh, I don't know what your experience is, but people will say, you know, gold isn't working because it's not going higher on inflation. This was particularly true back half of last year. If you actually look at the data, though, Daniel, you know, gold really doesn't show a very strong relationship with inflation. Um. If you look at gold and inflation on, let's say, an underlying basis, so on a five-year basis, you know, how much higher is gold today or lower than it was five years ago? What is the average rate of inflation over the last five years? What you had was the famous bull market for gold in the 1970s. Yes, absolutely. That was, you know, gold prices rose and then retreated with underlying inflation. But the opposite happened during the bull market of the dot-com crash and the global financial crisis. The early part of the 20th century, 21st century, sorry, uh, you know, 2000 through to 2012, inflation was actually very, very low on an underlying basis. Um, what does matter to gold regarding inflation is actually interest rates. And this is why gold is often spoken about with, you know, people talk about the Fed, you know, what are the Fed going to do? And it does matter to gold. It does matter what interest rates do. But it really matters to gold what interest rates do relative to inflation. And this is why I think gold is holding up very well in the face of the jump in longer term interest rates in the bond market. Okay, they've only jumped to, you know, what were all time lows a couple of years ago. Um, but that's why gold, I think, is at pretty much all time record highs right now. I mean, if you look at it on an underlying basis, you look at it on a month monthly average, you know, gold is, is pretty much as high as it's ever been. Again, that can make it quite difficult for new investors to come in. But when you look at the picture for longer term interest rates, they're going to lag inflation. And what that means is that means a destruction of value in cash in the bank. And that tends to be good for gold prices and for underlying gold investment demand because gold doesn't pay you any income. So if interest rates are rising in real terms, then it's literally, a, you know, it, it, it's opportunity cost rises. Gold becomes a losing bet effectively. But if the opposite is happening, if cash in the bank is going to lose value at an accelerating rate, then physical rare, uncreatable gold becomes much more appealing. Um, and so it's really that relationship that is worth looking at between gold and real interest rates. Yeah. What, what, um, another thing that people 
keep talking about is um, that, that a lot of money that might have gone into gold is actually now going into Bitcoin as sort of a, an alternative place to park your money in um, sort of uncertain times. But, you know, gold is sort of, I did some mass gold is trading 1% higher than when the Ukraine war began, but Bitcoin is actually trading 23% higher. Um, yet Bitcoin's price has been extreme volatile. Um, so I wouldn't quite call it as you know as a safe haven asset. But what 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 have you looked into sort of the um, you know in, investor interest or, or broader interest in in sort of looking at Bitcoin versus gold? I think I think it's a really interesting point, and I think you know your analysis of looking at it just since the Ukraine crisis kicked off. I think perhaps it is, if I may, I think it's a useful example of how uh, timeframes can can mislead, because if you look at where gold is relative to you know twelve months ago or prior to the start of this year, you know, Bitcoin has really struggled from its all-time highs. And I'd absolutely agree with you, Daniel, that, you know, the volatility in Bitcoin makes trying to draw any conclusions about its nature as an asset class very difficult. We did some work um, last year looking at what we had seen in 2020 during the COVID crisis. 2020 proved to be a record year for gold investment demand. Never seen heavier gold investment demand. That's true of ETFs, certainly true of vaulted bullion, such as, as bullion vault. Um, so we took a look at the makeup of our customer base, new customers acquired, and it was a record year for new customer acquisition for bullion vault in 2020 on the COVID crisis. We had a look at the makeup of that because obviously Bitcoin was coming into its own as a mainstream story, if not a mainstream asset during the COVID crisis as well. And the proportion of new customers who joined Bullion Vault in 2020, aged under 30. And you might assume that that is where, you know, the reason we looked at that is because that's where you might think that any shift in behavior amongst age cohorts is going to really show would be in younger investors not buying gold and choosing something else instead. Well, that fell as a proportion of all new customers to 13% from around 14% the year before and around 15% as a long-term average. So you might say, oh, wow, under 30s were fleeing gold. Well, they weren't. They just didn't buy gold in quite the same proportion. However, 2020 was a record year. And so the number of people aged under 30 who bought on Bullion Vault for the first time in 2020 actually rose threefold from the year before. So it was only because older investors were buying even faster that that proportion fell from 14, 15 down to 13. Last year, again, Bitcoin was... Uh, you know, really making headlines as a mainstream asset or mainstream consideration, maybe. But excluding 2020, because it was such a record year, our under 30s new investors on Bullion Vault, it was 120% of the pre-COVID five-year average. So there's really no evidence that we can see in investor behavior of a turn away from gold. That's not to say that people aren't potentially putting money that they would have put into gold into Bitcoin. We have no, you know, we've got no sight of that. There's, there's, there's simply no way that we as a business or anybody, I don't think, frankly, can really try and figure that out for sure. But from what we can see in terms of dollars coming in, we don't see any mass decline, particularly in that age group that you might expect, you know, investors under 30, really don't see them turning away from gold. 
Adrian Ash there from Bullion Vault. And almost as if we plan this stuff, Jenny Owen is here with news that the Royal Mint has found a way to turn our old phones into gold. This sounds like Rumpelstiltskin, Jenny. I wish it was, but you might know the Royal Mint as the company making commemorative coins at every opportunity, but they're turning their attention to our electrical waste, also known as e-waste. In the UK, each person generates 24 kilograms of e-waste each year, which is the second highest in the world. This amounts to around 300,000 tonnes of electricals being thrown away by Brits annually, which also means tonnes of of precious metals being binned. And of this, about only 20% is being recycled currently. The Royal Mint are keen to recover all metals on circuit boards, predominantly in laptops and mobile phones. They're mainly interested in gold, but copper, nickel, tin and silver are also useful. In their South Wales plant, they're removing circuit boards from phones and laptops in a secret solution, which then turns into a reddish-brown powder. This is then heated for 30 minutes at over 100,000 degrees Celsius, and the gold remains to be reused. They're working on a small scale at the moment, but the plan is to process 90 tonnes of e-waste each week by next year. Now, Being eco-friendly is all well and good, but I doubt you listen to the Money and Markets podcast hear me natter about recycling. The average mobile phone has 0.04 grams of gold, which equates to only about £1.50, £2 worth of gold. So not exactly life-changing sums, but if you do have a few old laptops and dead phones lying around, it might be worth doing your bit. So it's not worth us finding some kind of science kit and sticking it on a kitchen table then for one or two phones? Probably not. But I mean, especially seeing as 99% of e-waste is in the UK is currently being shipped overseas to be processed, it it kind of has a, a bigger effect. So who knows? It might, it might be a big mass uh, rollout. Well, thanks, Jenny. And thanks for everyone for listening. That's the end of this week's episode. Don't forget, we do love to hear from you. So please get in touch. You can email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next week, Laura Souter joins me in the hot seat and you can hear an interview I've done with Giles Frost, Fund Director of INPP, International Public Partnerships Infrastructure Trust, along with all the latest market news and views. Hope you can join us then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.